This holiday season, give the gift of glow with Osea's limited edition Super Glow Body Set. This three-piece kit has everything they need to exfoliate, hydrate, and glow all over. For a gift that will impress, give Osea's Super Glow Body Set. Right now, you can get the Super Glow Body Set valued at $126 for only $79 when you use code GIFT at OseaMalibu.com. That's code GIFT at OseaMalibu.com. Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. A lot of us deal with minor aches and pains on a daily basis, and some of us suffer from a pain that's a lot worse and doesn't respond very well to medication. On this episode, we'll find out what can be done to deal with lingering pain that can keep you from living life to its fullest. Our guest is Dr. Saloni Sharma, who is double board certified in pain management and rehabilitation medicine. And she's the author of the new book, The Pain Solution, Five Steps to Relieve and Prevent Back Pain, Muscle Pain and Joint Pain Without Medication. Dr. Sharma, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me here. I'm super excited. What led you to write the book? Honestly, we have an opiate crisis, as you all know. And we also have a pain crisis. I mean, people are suffering and they're told, don't take pills, don't get procedures, don't do any of these things. And no one's told what to do instead. And I see people with pain all day, especially back pain and neck pain, as well as joint pain. And it's a lot of don't do this, but we aren't offering people solutions. You've come up with five steps to relieve and prevent back muscle and joint pain without medication. So can you tell us what those are and elaborate a little bit on them? Sure. So I call it my relief five R program. And part of it is just to make it easy to remember, but the first part's refuel, which means focusing on healthy, natural, unprocessed foods, then revitalize, which is focusing on movement and activity followed by recharge, which is building restorative sleep, refresh, which is working on stress reduction, building resilience, and sort of finding your North star and purpose as well as relate, which is positive social connections. And so how do you start with these things? Say I wake up in the morning and I'm feeling aches and pains from arthritis or sciatica or something. And this is from personal experience. (laughs) So, so how would I incorporate those things into my life? I think it starts by just doing simple things. So, you know, if you wake up and you're already sort of sore or stiff, you want to have ahead of time, some stretches in mind that you can do in bed before you get moving. You want to think about maybe adding a hot shower to your morning routine and you want to focus on your stress reduction. So it might be taking five minutes to do a mindfulness exercise after your shower, kind of loosen up um, your mental and physical stress together because they're so connected. In the book, I actually talk about something called micro boost, which is a term I coined and it's little steps that add up to big relief. So we want to just make tiny tweaks that make a big difference. We don't want this to be super hard or time consuming or really expensive. Uh, Most of the things are free in the book. It's just about making little changes that can add up to big relief. Why is it that pills don't provide lasting relief, like for the person who takes NSAIDs every day? It's a Band-Aid. So it just stops a cascade. It stops a chemical reaction in the body. It doesn't cure the cause or even address the cause. So it's really just blocking uh, a cycle that's already been started. It's not getting to the root cause of the problem. What can you do to actually prevent pain in the first place? I I was intrigued that you say that can be done. So to be clear, obviously pain is part of life. Everyone has some 
pain at some point in their life. Um, we want to reduce it and we want to reduce inflammation. So if you imagine someone who has arthritis of their knee, their arthritis is always there, but it only swells sometimes. And that's the part we want to reduce is episodes of painful flares and swelling. The swelling's inflammation. So if we can lead more of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle, we can reduce inflammation and then reduce pain. Let's talk a little bit about how food affects pain and you write about your own refuel experience. Yeah. So that's a big one. I, I sometimes for some people, I think it's the, the number one factor, you know, we're sort of indoctrinated to believe that diet sodas or low fat, this and low fat that are, are healthier for us, but, but they really aren't. Um, diet soda is just as unhealthy, just in different ways than regular soda, excessive sugar, artificial sweeteners, a lot of processed foods, these all feed inflammation. And that's what we talked about um, earlier is that inflammation is what's causing the pain and driving these painful flares. So if you want to reduce some of that morning stiffness and achiness that you'd mentioned, um, for some people, it could be as simple as cutting out soda. It could be reducing sugar. It could be swapping out soda for sparkling water. Um, we could also do little changes like trying to avoid desserts, especially at bedtime, trying not to eat a couple hours before bed. So our body actually needs time to rest and rejuvenate. And at night, a process called autophagy happens where your body tries to clear out cellular debris and heal. And if it's too busy processing food that you just ate before you lay down, uh, it really can't do a good clean out and things get dirty and um, cause problems. Tell us a little bit more about the role that sleep plays in all of this. How much sleep should we strive for if we want to be, you know, armed against pain? So the average adult needs seven to eight hours of sleep, you know, and there's some variation. Some people need a little less, some people need a little more, but less than five and more than nine in general are, are excessive and they can cause problems either way. So if you get too little sleep or too much sleep, it's not really good for you. And sleep is restorative. That's like, I started to say people for people, it cleans out your body. It helps you heal and prepares you for the next day. And if you don't get enough sleep, then you often look for a different form of energy, which is food. And often it's quick, easy foods, little pick me up processed foods, you know, a little convenience store or vending machine just to make things go fast. And so sleep deprivation all often leads to more food and more comfort food eating, which causes more inflammation and then more pain. Now, why is it a bad thing if you do have too much sleep, if you sleep over nine hours? Our body is designed actually to be in tune with circadian rhythms and natural rhythms. So um, this is sort of my new area of interest is, is really focusing on circadian living which is a form of anti-inflammatory living. So you know, if you're sleeping more than nine hours, your body's not really moving the way it's designed to. And often you're not going to be in sync with daylight hours. Obviously there's daylight saving times and some, some tweaks to that. But in general, um, if you're sleeping more than nine hours, you might actually have a medical condition that could be a thyroid disorder. Uh, it could be depression. It could be several things. And so if you regularly require more than nine hours of sleep, you should be evaluated by your doctor. You know, I remember my mother suffered from rheumatoid arthritis for many years. And there were some days that she said, you know, I just don't want to get out of bed. It's so painful. So for people like her, what message do you have if the pain really is making you want to stay in bed and you're feeling better because of it, because at least you're not moving around and, and going through the pain? What's the message there? I think to be clear, you know, staying in bed and sleep are different, right? So sleeping more than nine hours is, a, is an issue, but um, wanting to stay in bed, I think it's looking for more of a driving purpose and a motivating force. So 
Um, if the pain is so severe that you don't want to get out of bed, I mean, that's definitely something you discuss with your physician. Sometimes there is a role for medications uh, temporarily or just in that on bad days, for example, to get you through it. Something like rheumatoid arthritis, there's uh, immunobiologics, which help with immune overactivity and immune suppression. So that could be helpful. But I think having something to get out of bed for a motivating purpose or focus, knowing some exercises you can do while you're in bed, maybe having some topical treatments you can do for your tender joints. So that could be some topical creams. It could be heating patches. So sort of having a plan and a toolkit, but also a driving force that motivates you to try to get out and, and get moving can be helpful. And it seems like there are other really simple fixes, like maybe trying to hydrate yourself. Cause I found what you wrote about dehydration and its impact on pre-existing pain to be very interesting. Isn't it? It's so fascinating. I mean, before I had done some research for this book, I wasn't aware of how much data there is on that. So being dehydrated, it's, it's like taking a pill to cause pain. It basically increases your sensitivity to pain and also can increase inflammation. Furthermore, in terms of joints and spine, it can affect how hydrated you are and how hydrated your body is in terms at a cellular level as well. So dehydration is a big problem. A lot of people who sort of feel hungry a lot or, or eat more than they want, we'll say, just have a glass of water before every meal to sort of counter that, but also to get your water in and swapping out the sodas for water can be a huge difference too, in terms of pain and inflammation. And what about fruit juices? Do they do the same as water in terms of hydration? Unfortunately not. And I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, you know, as a kid, you know, juice is kind of like a sort of seems like a healthy thing and and better. And it's definitely better than processed drinks like sodas, but, um, it's much better to eat the whole fruit. I'd rather have someone eat an orange than have a glass of orange juice, orange, the fruit itself actually has fiber and that slows down the sugar spike and it causes less inflammation. So it's also going to keep you full. So it's much, much better to have a whole orange than a glass of orange juice. And if you're looking only at drinks, it's much better to drink water, um, than orange juice. There are a lot of people who don't like healthy foods and aren't getting the kind of nutrients that they need. Is it the same if they take a supplement to get those? And if so, what kind of supplements would you recommend? In my opinion, it's not the same. Um, just like with the example of the orange, you don't get the full benefits of the whole natural food uh, in a supplement. And so if people have deficiencies in their diet or issues or they have to take supplements, some of the ones we use for inflammation, but I, again, I emphasize this is an addition to taking an anti-inflammatory approach to eating as much as you can. Um, turmeric is a good one with some good data for inflammation, as well as omega-3 fish oil. They both have good data to help with reducing inflammation in some cases, pain. Moving on to movement, what would you like us to know about movement and the role that it plays in easing pain? Because I know when I wake up in the morning and I have my morning aches and pains, after I move for 10 minutes, I'm feeling better. It's just a little bit hard sometimes to, to get going like that. So what are the guidelines in terms of how much movement we really need and can movement itself prevent pain in the future? So this is such an important topic. It really can. And I, I love that you gave that personal example of once you get moving, you sort of knows the difference. I actually talk about the secret sauce of exercise because it reduces pain in a way that a medicine just can't. So it releases natural endorphins. So if you've heard of an exercise high, it's a real thing. Our body produces hormones known as endorphins and they act like natural opioids or natural painkillers. And they decrease pain and make us feel good. It also 
believe it or not, <laughs> releases endocannabinoids, which is sort of like a natural marijuana. It activates your natural marijuana receptors. Um, and it helps with pain that way. It increases serotonin, which helps with mood and pain. It also helps release myokines, which are natural pain relievers and mood boosters. And even better, they reduce inflammation. So exercise is sort of the magic bullet. It kind of does everything you want for pain and inflammation. And I want to emphasize, it doesn't have to be, you know, 40 minutes is the gym every day, very hardcore and intense. Um, walking throughout the day can be helpful. In a lot of cases, it's better to take three 10 minute walks than to really work hard for 30 minutes and then just be sedentary the rest of the day. The national guidelines to answer your question are 150 minutes a week. Um, but in my mind, it, it's really being active every day and more often. I'd rather see someone get up and do a couple of 10 minute walks a day than be at the gym really hard for a short period. That's going to break up your sedentary activity. That's going to get you moving, going to get your blood flowing, and that's going to help with inflammation throughout the day. Now, what are adult timeouts and why should we take one every day? So adult timeout is a term I came up with. And I don't know if people remember back when they were young, um, you know, we were putting a timeout and it was kind of a bad thing. <laughs> it was a punishment, but for adults, we almost need a timeout from how much stress we have. And I'm referring to emotional, mental, and physical stressors. So an adult timeout is taking a 10 minute break to do something that you find joyful. It just brings you back to the present moment. It's a screen-free activity. And it could be something like cooking or reading or knitting, woodworking. There's lots of simple things. It could be just listening to a song. So it could be on a lunch break or work break or even after work in the parking lot. It could be just listening to a song for five minutes or 10 minutes, closing your eyes and just being present and in the moment, not feeling like you have to perform or be on uh, and, and just really giving yourself a break. And tell us more about what we can do in terms of mindfulness uh, to ease stress and ease pain. So the data on mindfulness is irrefutable in terms of pain, inflammation, and quality of life. Um, there's even some data coming out about health span and lifespan. So mindfulness doesn't have to be very formal either. And I think that's a big theme that we're talking about today is none of it has to be really hard. Um, there's a lot of free apps that people can use with free versions. Um, and you can just sit in your car before work or after work and do a five minutes, five minute mindfulness activity, um, either with an app, but you can also just mindfully walk. You can go for a walk and not have your phone out, just be looking around and see what you see and be engaged. You can mindfully eat, which is feeling all the textures of the food, listening to the sounds. You can mindfully talk to someone, maintain eye contact, don't respond until they ask for a response, but sort of nod and you know show you're engaged, but don't sort of just be listening to offer your next piece of information. There's a lot of ways you can be mindful without having to formally do a practice, but our brains are always going and running and they're really not designed for multitasking. That's actually a computer term. We're not made to do three things at the same time, despite the fact that many people, especially women are encouraged or rewarded to do that. We're made to focus on one task at a time. So when people multitask, they're actually task switching in their brain back and forth. And if you're doing something simple, like cutting vegetables and, you know, listening to music, you're probably going to do okay. But, you know, a deadly example is driving and texting or trying to do some more serious activities at the same time, really not made for it. And so taking a couple minutes for a mindfulness activity or exercise, even five minutes can sort of just help calm things, reset, it'll decrease your stress. It can lower inflammation and it can make what you're doing next. You can be more focused and more present with it. 
thought it was so interesting that you talk about social connections and their relation to pain and inflammation. Can you go into that a little bit? Sure. Um, I think the pandemic, unfortunately, has really brought this to the forefront. Uh, you know, poor social connection or lack of social contact affects our physical health in addition to our mental and emotional health. A great example I like to use is one of the worst forms of punishment in prison is solitary confinement. And that's because we know that's one of the worst things is to be isolated from your peers. There's actually data, uh, a study that came out in 2020, and people who were in solitary confinement had more orthopedic pain afterwards than other people. They felt less sense of self. They felt a loss of anxiety, excuse me, loss of identity. They felt anxiety, depression, and they actually became more socially isolated. So having a lack of social connection or poor social connections, meaning not supportive, can really affect your inflammation. It can affect your pain and it affects your coping skills. So your ability to actually handle pain, to figure out what to do. And there's things we can do to improve that. Like what? So um, one of the things I talk about is sort of focusing on people who are supportive of you and trying to connect with them on a daily basis. And obviously we can't all see our loved ones every day, but whether it's phone or text, but some kind of contact and some kind of communication that you're grateful to have them in your life, that can actually be beneficial to you as well. Another thing I talk about is the rise mentor. So finding someone who inspires you and someone you want to be like, someone who makes the world better and someone who is just sort of a general role model for you. And you may or may not know someone. I mean, maybe a family member or a coworker. Um, it may be a famous person. It may be a figure like Mahatma Gandhi or Fred Rogers or Mother Teresa, but it could even be a fictional character. I mean, some of my favorites are Ted Lasso from the TV show, Ted Lasso, um, or Leslie Knope from Parks and Rec. These are people who kind of in the face of adversity and move forward and they lead with kindness. And if you don't have people in your life who are like that, if you're surrounded by a lot of negative people, then it's hard to sort of cope well with pain and inflammation. And it actually makes your pain, stress, and inflammation worse. So looking for a rise mentor or someone to sort of guide you and think, well, what would they do in this situation? How would they handle this? That can be really helpful. And when I think about doing that, I think about going on my phone and, and maybe getting motivational quotes by them or something. Or when I think about making a social connection with, with a family member and, and thanking them for being in my life or something, again, it involves the phone, but I know that the phone is not a great thing for pain and inflammation, especially at night. So why is that? Yeah. So that's a wonderful point. Um, I think it's just how the phone is used, right? So I, I think using it for social connection is great when it's with real people and not sort of like bots on social media who you don't know or who may or may not exist. Um, I think connecting with your loved ones is fine to use the phone for. At night, it's not great because uh, a lot of screen time at night can actually affect the quality of your sleep. Um, everyone's sort of heard about the whole phenomenon of blue light and using blue light glasses. The data actually shows if you can resist screens for two hours before bedtime, that's the best. I don't think that's really realistic. Um, in the book, I talk about a 30-30 rule. If you can not use screens 30 minutes before bedtime and 30 minutes after waking up in the morning, that's pretty darn good. And, and that can be pretty helpful. Um, the screens are very stimulating. They kind of get you thinking on different pathways and about different people. And, and they really distract you from your present moment. They keep you from being mindful. They keep you from having gratitude. They keep you from sort of winding down and getting ready for restorative sleep, which is what we all really need to heal. And what impact does something like alcohol consumption have on pain? Because I have heard of people turning to alcohol because they have physical or, or emotional pain, but does that work? So it, um, it works in the short term. So that evening, 
it, it may be helpful, but unfortunately, long term, it, it doesn't help. So it's what we consider in the medical field numbing habits as a way you sort of numb yourself and disassociate from the present. And this isn't about judgment or um, defining what's right or wrong. You know, if someone wants to have a glass of alcohol socially and, and that's sort of up to them. But when you turn to that to cope with a problem or with your pain, that's where it's concerning because you're not actually, again, dealing with the source. It's almost like taking pills like we talked about earlier. You're just covering up the symptom and you're actually making it worse because as you probably know, alcohol is dehydrating. And we had talked about how being properly hydrated makes a big difference for stress, inflammation, and pain. So you're actually stressing your body out physically with the dehydration. What are the placebo and nocebo effects on pain? Sure. This is a wonderful question. So um, placebo, many people uh, are familiar with that. And, and that is when a quote unquote fake treatment, for example, sugar pills gives you a positive effect. Nocebo, which is less heard of, but actually more powerful is when you believe that something isn't going to work, it's more likely not to work. So if you go into a, um, like an injection, like a knee injection, or if you go into some other event in your life, um, maybe even just like going to watch an entertaining movie or show and you say, this is going to be terrible. You're more likely not to enjoy it. You're more likely to have a negative experience. So it's sort of setting yourself up for failure in a lot of ways. So we think going into any treatments medically, or even just experiences in your life, if you set yourself up with a feeling of this is going to be terrible, this is going to be horrible, it's more likely to be so. I'm wondering what impact weight has on pain. So there's several impacts, um, you know, in terms of joint pain and spine pain, there's just the mechanical load. If someone has excess weight, they're carrying that can cause more pain and more degeneration earlier. Um, but a lot of fat, especially abdominal or visceral fat actually causes inflammation. So it builds up and produces inflammatory cytokines. So it's not just a physical, but it's actually at a chemical level. It causes more inflammation, more disease, and more pain. And when I talk about inflammation, um, you know, we're focused on pain today, but inflammation really feeds most diseases, including diabetes, heart disease, strokes, and in a lot of ways, dementia. So the things we're talking about today really affect overall wellness and well-being. Talk to us about how having chronic painful inflammation can make us more sensitive to pain in other areas than the major source of pain. So your body can actually kind of just be on hyper alert or overdrive. So it has a painful area and, um, in one condition, it can actually spread It's called complex regional pain syndrome, where you had an injury, or even if you didn't have an injury, sometimes you get an area that becomes red and inflamed and swollen, and it stays like that. And it's sensitive to touch and it can heighten your risk for having the same syndrome elsewhere. Your whole body's sort of fight or flight or inflammation system is on overdrive and any little insult can sort of set everything on red alert and cause more pain than it really should. I've, I know that some might be skeptical about using these other techniques to reduce pain because maybe they grew up in an era where, oh, you, you've got to take a pill for it. So what do you say to people who are skeptical and, and, and say, my pain is so bad, I, medicine is the only thing that's going to work for me? I think there's a role for medicine and maybe in a flare, an acute flare for a couple of days, people need a medicine and, and that's okay. My concern is long-term. There are so many side effects that we know about and so many that we don't know about. There's interactions with other medications and with other food, even that you're taking. And most pills are based on natural products uh, that exist in nature. And so they're sort of manipulated and 
hyper-concentrated in a lab, but that's what they're really based on. So if we can get away from something that causes side effects to something that doesn't and something that goes to the solution of the problem instead of being a Band-Aid, it just makes more sense in the long run. Yeah, and I thought it was really interesting that you talk about how drugs can actually have a bad impact on organs and gut microbiome in the long run. I, I had no idea. Isn't that wild? It's a lot of things you don't know. I've studied integrative medicine, lifestyle medicine, and functional medicine, in addition to my traditional medical training. And there's a lot of stuff we don't learn about in our traditional medical training. And the gut microbiome is such a new area of research, but, you know, taking a lot of NSAIDs, which are anti-inflammatories, like ibuprofen, uh, Aleve, Advil, those types can actually affect your gut microbiome. And just to um, be clear, the microbiome is the group of organisms that live in everyone's gut. And they actually influence a lot of things in our health. They can influence our inflammation level, they influence how we process food and we can cause some dysbiosis or some changes in our gut flora, our gut bacteria that can make it more likely to have inflammation or more likely to have pain. And a lot of these pills actually affect our whole gut microbiome. So it's just, it's not, it's no good. (laughs) So what can we do to get a healthy gut microbiome? It's really focusing uh, on the food. I mean, there's a whole industry with prebiotics and probiotics and probiotics are sort of like healthy organisms that you can ingest uh, through pills or yogurts and other ways. But the best way is really food first. And that's kind of my mantra is really to do food first. So if we focus on plant-based rainbow colored, different colored natural plants and vegetables, um, especially veggies more than fruits, but really a spectrum of both we can build a better and healthier gut microbiome. We can actually feed it what it needs to thrive. And there's something called prebiotics, which is food that your gut microflora like to eat. And so um, fibrous foods are especially good for them. So foods high in fiber can be helpful. And um, fermented foods can also be helpful, like kombucha or yogurt, things like that. And Dr. Sharma, as you know, our show is called Nobody Told Me. So at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what did nobody tell you about finding a pain solution without medication that you wish you'd known long before? Because it would have helped you and you want our listeners to know, because maybe it'll help them. Well, nobody told me that we have the power to feel better on our own that we don't need pills and lots of procedures. Again, there's a role for that in an acute or severe situation, but nobody told me through med school, through college, through residency, through fellowship, through my second fellowship, that we can feel better on our own. If we change our lifestyle and we sort of work in sync with our natural rhythms, if we try to eat better and sleep better, and that'll lead us to feel better. Dr. Sharma, how can people connect with you on social media and the internet and find out more about your work? So uh, on Instagram, it's at Saloni Sharma MD. So that's my name, S-A-L-O-N-I-S-H-A-R-M-A-M-D. And my website's the same, salonisharmamd.com. And that probably the best way. I also am the medical director of an integrative center in Philadelphia, uh, which is at Rothman Orthopedics. So there's some information there as well. Well, doctor, we thank you so much for joining us. This has really been very, very helpful. And I love the fact that you've got these great micro boost ideas that we can all integrate. Thank you so much. This has been excellent. I hope we can help a lot of people together. Me too. Me too. Again, our thanks to Dr. Saloni Sharma, whose new book is called The Pain Solution, 
Five Steps to Relieve and Prevent Back Pain, Muscle Pain, and Joint Pain Without Medication. And again, her website is salonisharma.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us.